0: If you guys got your Bibles, flip open to Mark chapter 9, Mark the second gospel in the New Testament. I'm going to pray real quick and then we'll get started. Father, Lord, no one knows uh, my weakness like you. God, no one knows uh, how much I truly... And honestly need you more than you, Father. Um, Tonight, God, uh, we all sit here, Lord, in in desperate need of you, whether we know it or not. God, uh, I thank you for those that have come out tonight, Lord. I thank you that you've planted it in their heart, Lord, to want and to come hear from your word, to want to come learn about you, Father. Um, I pray, God, that you would give us a great appetite tonight for your word, Lord, that our attention spans would not be short. God, that we would be willing to, um, as we're going to learn, Lord, to gaze upon uh, your greatness and your glory tonight, Father. And I pray that we would be changed by it, Lord. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this room tonight, Lord. God, may this not just be another Bible study. May this not be another uh, thing that we just do throughout our day. God, may this be life-changing. Holy Spirit, would you transform our minds, our hearts, our souls through the life-giving word that's before us. Holy Spirit, would you glorify Jesus, our King, in these words, Father, and would we humbly approach your text, would we approach your text, Lord, in a way that that is uh, in awe and in reverence, Father, each word, each sentence, each phrase, each truth, God, Um, so Lord, teach us tonight, pray that, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, have you guys ever thought about, have you ever thought about why it is that we as people love big, extraordinary, glorious, amazing things. Raise your hand if you're in, in here if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. Anyone in here been to the Grand Canyon? Most of you guys have been to the Grand Canyon. I mean, any, any of you guys ever been to Crater Lake before? <laughs> Everybody's been to Crater Lake. Anybody went to, been, anybody went to White City? I'm just <laughs> Sorry, that's bad. Uh, uh, forget that. Um, why do we go to these places? Anybody? Why, why do we have this longing... Why do we have this longing to go to these places? You can yell it out, anyone? To see majesty, yeah, totally. To see awesome things, to see things that are greater than ourselves. Why do we go to sporting events? Why do we go to movies? Why do we go to uh, see the ocean? Why do we we stare up at the stars? Why do we um, look at pictures of the universe and, and marvel at things that are greater than ourselves? Um, when I was a kid, I was really into BMX biking, freestyle BMX biking. And I remember the first time uh, that I watched on the X Games, Matt Hoffman did a 900, it's, that's 900, okay, on a bicycle with no hands, about 30 feet in the air, and it was glorious, and my heart just jumped. It was so cool. It had never been done before. I remember the first time that I saw a man literally do a double backflip on a dirt bike on the X Games. It was amazing. No one had ever seen that before. There's something in you guys, there's something in me that is designed and lo- designed to long for greater and more, splendor thing, more splendorous things than what we have seen. There's something that's been put there for you guys to desire that. And that's, that's normal. The text we're going to look at tonight is kind of cool because it really is for a moment, for a second, the disciples are able to have the curtain peeled back and able to see something more glorious than they ever had or ever will on uh, this life before. It's pretty interesting. So let's get into it uh, starting in verse 1 says in chapter 9 of Mark, now verse 1, before we read it, guys, uh, verse 1 is kind of funny. It's sandwiched in between uh, the story that we're going to look at tonight and the story, some of the stories that we looked at last week, and it's, it seems very random and sort of out of place. So we're going to tackle that really quick, and then we're going to move on towards the story that I think uh, we're really going to focus in on tonight. So verse 1 says, he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. After it has come with power. So this is a random, controversial verse uh, that none of the commentators can agree on what it means. Um, a lot of people have questioned whether it's supposed to be there. I think it is supposed to be there. Um, some of the different views, Jesus is essentially saying that you guys, some of you guys that are standing before me are going to be alive still when the kingdom of God comes in power. What's he talking about? The question is, uh, what, what is the event that he's talking about that's going to happen in these people's lives, and these disciples' lives. A lot of people think it's the resurrection. A lot of people would say, oh, that means when Jesus is raised from the grave, ascends to the right end of the Father, that's the kingdom of glory. A lot of people would say this is the second coming, which, if you think about it, would be kind of strange, right? Because if the second coming still hasn't come, as we would believe, um, those guys are all dead. Uh, there is a type of theology called post-millennialism where they believe that we're actually in the millennium now that that the uh, the rapture, I'm sorry, that the, the the tribulation, all these things have already happened and that we're in the millennium and that's a verse that they would use to, to believe that. Some people would believe that it's the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes with power uh, after Jesus is raises. And then others, and this is the one that I think it is, because of where Mark placed it, would think that this is actually alluding to the story that we're going to look at tonight. That he says when that some of you are going to see the kingdom come in power. And when he's referring to that, he's referring to the event that's about to happen, the transfiguration, which we're going to look at. So you can study that at home, read it. I didn't want to spend too much time on it because it's a little bit of a different direction, but that's what I believe it is. Moving on in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Okay, so we have the 12 disciples, and Jesus goes to the 12 disciples and he selects three. He says, I want Peter, I want James, and I want John, and we're going to go up this mountain. Now, why does he select three? You guys ever think about that? Jesus almost has like this inner circle within the 12 of these disciples. Why does he have three? Well, I think, first of all, I think it's just good leadership. I mean, why does Jesus hang out with 12, right? Right? I mean, why doesn't he hang out with everybody? Why doesn't Jesus spend the majority of his time with everyone on earth? Because Jesus, as you guys know, fully God, fully man, he left his throne and he became a man. So he's in a man's body. And Jesus can't do everything. He can't be everywhere. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, as a good leader, spent the majority of his time with 12 guys. Okay, and this is just good leadership. This is, this is what I try to do in my ministry. I understand that I can't spend all of my time with everyone that I minister to all, the, to, to all the time. I can't spend all of my time with all the people on the worship team all the time. So I pick key leaders, and I try to really invest in them to become leaders themselves in hopes that they will lead. And this is what Jesus does with the disciples. He spends his time with those 12 in hopes that those 12, as they do, go and will lead the church. And it's the same thing here with Peter, James and John. He pulls aside three. He wants specifically for these three to see this. He wants to invest in those three specifically. It's almost as if Jesus wanted them to see this because they needed to have an understanding, a specific understanding, that was going to benefit them future in their ministry. Second thing to notice, so he grabs Peter, James and John and says he leads them up, in verse two, he leads them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Notice that he leads them up a mountain. I just want to stop and look at that really quick and think about it. There's significance to this that we should notice. Why is he leading them up a mountain? It's kind of random. You know what I mean? Why would you go up a mountain? Especially when you're in Israel, you see it's desert. Why would you go up a mountain? It's hot up there. There's nothing up there. The waters aren't necessarily up there. The springs are down by the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. Why would you go up a mountain? Well, throughout the Bible, God often reveals himself in glory on mountains. Can you guys think of anything right away off the top of your head? Moses, right? Moses went up Mount Sinai, and God's Shekinah glory met him up there. Remember that? God had his experience with the Father. In fact, Moses' face shone and, and glo- uh, glued, glowed. <laughs> glowed because he was in the presence of God on a mountain. Um, Elijah, as we'll look at, called down fire on Mount Carmel, right? Against the prophets of Baal. The temple itself, right? The temple in Jerusalem is on a mountain. So oftentimes, God reveals his glory. Oftentimes, God meets with people on top of a mountain. I think it's interesting. Now, why? I was thinking about this today. Why mountains? Have you guys ever been in the redwoods before? Okay, talk about seeing splendor and amazing and big things, right? These redwood trees are huge. But it's funny when you're in there because you're really in like this dense jungle-like feel. Like you don't know where you are. There's so much shrubs and giant trees that you really don't know where, where you are. But yet you climb up the top of a mountain, you know exactly where you are. You can see around you, you can see your surroundings, you know what's going on. I think that's partly it. I think that God wants to call us to a place where we can see. Jesus says, I want to take you, Peter, James, and John, in heritage, I want to take you up this mountain tonight, and I want you to see something. I want you to have clarity of sight. I don't want you to be in the valley with a bunch of trees and shrubs where you can't see. I want you to be able to see clearly because I want to show you something. And I think secondly, the reason he takes them up a mountain it's because it's separating them from the world. He's taking them out of the city. I want to take them up into the mountain, a place where we're not gonna be around people where I can reveal something to them. And guys, this is what church should be, okay? This is what church should be. I don't. This, this is something that, that maybe we've strayed from, maybe I've forgotten, but I don't know if you guys are just in the routine of coming on Wednesday nights or if you're just on the routine of going on Sunday morning. But is church for you like just something that you do on a Wednesday, a Sunday morning? Or is church for you something like, I'm going to ascend the mountain tonight. I'm going to leave all of the confusion and the darkness and the sin that I deal with day to day in my life. And I'm going to climb up the mountain and I'm going to be able to see clearly through the word of God. And God is going to meet me up there. He's going to show me his glory I'm gonna to get to meet with him personally like you would ascending to the temple like these guys are doing, ascending up the mountain to see Jesus transfigured. Is that what church is for us or is it just kind of a routine thing? I get to go to church on Wednesday night. What are we doing? We're ascending the hill, getting away from the world, leaving our jobs behind for a moment, leaving our stresses behind for a moment and allowing ourselves to meet with the presence of God on top of a mountain and to see his glory revealed. Isn't that awesome? This is what we get to do. Now, as we'll see in our story, we don't stay up the mountain, right? We got to go back to work the next day. And these disciples, even though they get to see this glorious, uh, this glorious sight, they got to go back down the hill. And we do too, but we should long to go to church. If we don't, then we're not, we're, not, we're not getting it right. We're missing something. Church should be ascending the hill to see and to meet with the glory of God. So it says that he led him up the mountain, Peter, James, and John. Then it says that he is transfigured. I want to talk about that word really quick. I'm not going to pretend like I know how to pronounce it. Uh, it's metamorphoun or metamorphuon. If anybody knows the specific way to do it, let me know. Um, that's the Greek word that he's used there. Now, this is the same Greek word that he's used a few other times in the New Testament. If you guys remember Romans 12, 2, where it says be transformed by the renewing of your mind or 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And it says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image. The idea here, the imagery of this transformation is like that of like a, a, a butterfly that comes from a caterpillar to a butterfly or a tadpole into a frog. It's a transformation. Something is changing in him. Something is being transformed. This is what's happening. Now, this is not Jesus becoming something. Okay, this is important. If you're taking notes, this is not Jesus becoming something else, but rather this is Jesus revealing who he truly is. Okay, Jesus is not becoming glorified. Jesus is revealing his glory, okay? Now if this seems kind of strange to you, if this seems weird, okay, and if you think about it, it is a little strange. They go up the mountain and Jesus starts, as we're going to see, he starts to glow. His garments are completely white. This is a little bizarre. And all of a sudden, as we're going to see Moses and Elijah, they pop out. This is a crazy thing. If this seems weird to you, though, it only seems weird because maybe we've forgotten who this Jesus is that we're talking about. We can get so caught up in the Jesus as man that we forget that Jesus is deity, okay, We see Jesus having conversation, we see Jesus eating food, and sometimes we forget who we're really dealing with here. If this is weird, it's only because we've forgotten. Really quick, Hebrews 1, 3 through 5, I'll have it up on the screen for you guys, listen to this. It says, he is the radiance, now who is he? Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So if you guys missed that, this is what it's saying. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. I want you to think about the sun. Okay, what is the radiance of the sun? The radiance is the beams, the heat coming off of that. Okay? The radiance of the sun. It says that literally, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews literally says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is upholding the universe by his powerful word. He's sitting at the right hand of majesty on high, and he is superior to angels. This is the Jesus that is allowing them for a moment to see his true nature. Okay, This is not just a man. This is the God-man. Okay, if you still don't get it, here Colossians 1:17 says this, he is Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You hear that? <laughs> all things were created through Jesus, all things were created for Jesus. He's a big deal. And he is before all things. He's not a created being, as some of the cults would want us to believe. And in him, all things hold together. He's holding it all. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, what, preeminence the most, the most powerful, the most important. It's all about him. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now there's a lot there. But if you you read that and then you go back and you look at the transfiguration, it's not so strange anymore, is it? I mean, what did did Paul just say in Colossians? He said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He said he's the firstborn of all creation. He says that he is above all rulers, above all thrones, above all dominions, above authorities. He's the creator of all things. He's the reason for the creation of all things. In other words, he didn't just create things. Things were created for him. He's holding together all things. He's the reason everything is together. That's, everything is existing. He's the first to conquer death. He is the head of the church. He is the preeminent above all things. He is the one whom the fullness of God dwells. He is the reconciler of all things to himself. And he is peace, the peacemaker by the blood of his cross. This is the Jesus that they're seeing right now. This is the Jesus that's being transfigured. I'll say it again. He's not being transformed into a glorious being. The curtain is being pulled, and he is being seen for the glorious being that he is. And I would go so far to say he's not just a glorious being. Listen, he is glory. He is glory. He's not a glorious being, he is the source of glory. He is the glory of the Father. It's amazing. Verse three says, says he's transfigured and then verse three says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Now try to stay with me here. We're gonna look at some scripture. Again, I want to paint the picture of who is Jesus really? We see him in the gospels as the suffering servant. We see him as a man, as weak, as struggling. But who is Jesus in his glorified state? Who is Jesus behind the curtain? Who is Jesus underneath his fallen skin that he is in right now? Look at Daniel 7. It'll be up on the screen if you just want to read along. Daniel 7 says this, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Sound familiar? The hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand and thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom. That all people, nations and language, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what is Daniel saying here about Jesus? His clothing is white as snow. His hair, his head is like pure wool which is symbolizing purity, holiness, okay? That's purity and holiness. His throne is a fiery flames. A stream of fire comes out of him. What does that mean? Fire is, symboli- is, is symbolic of purification, of judgment, that Jesus is going to purify and judge all things and cause all things to be righteous and pure. He's given dominion and glory in a kingdom. All people and nations and langu- languages serve him. His dominion is forever. It shall not pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. This is the Jesus that is contained in an earthly body. Have you guys ever thought about the magnitude of the fact that God became man? I mean, this is something that is, yeah, okay, we get that. It's a Christian doctrine. We understand he's fully God, he's fully man. Have you ever thought and looked at these verses and thought about how amazing it is that the star breather has become a man that has taken on a fallen earthly body with all of its flaws and all of its hurts and all of its pains and all of its weakness, that Jesus would become man. One more, Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun, listen to this, or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. That means in heaven, guys, we don't need the sun. Why? Because Jesus is the light. (laughs) He burns so bright that we don't need the sun in heaven by its light will the nations walk and there will be no night there they will bring into it the glory and the honor of nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life he is the source of light so they take him Jesus Jesus takes them up the hill and he begins to glow and he begins to turn his raiments turn extremely white is that shocking <laughs> Is that surprising after looking at those texts? No, it's not. It's not surprising at all. Jesus is the glory, the radiance of God. What's really happening here, guys? What's happening is not simply, as I said, not simply that Jesus is being transformed but that he's being revealed. If you can t- if you can picture in your head, if I took you 100 feet from the sun, okay, and the sun's nothing compared to the glory of God, but just as an illustration, I take you to 100 feet to the sun, and I put a curtain, a blackout curtain in front of you, and I start to just peel back a corner of that. The radiance and the heat and the light that is gonna come from that sun, you're just gonna catch a little bit of it. It's exactly what's happening here. A tiny corner is being peeled back, and Peter and James and John are allowed to see just a glimpse of the eternal and powerful glory of Jesus Christ, just a glimpse of the radiance of who he truly is, and it blows them away. The reality is is that we are filthy. We are literally sinful from the core. And that Jesus comes into our life and he clothes us in righteousness. It's not the same with Jesus. He is not sinful like we are. Okay? We're fallen. Jesus comes in by his grace and covers us in purity. The opposite is with Christ. He is purity. He is righteousness. And when Jesus becomes man, he is clothed in a human's body. That's it. Does that make sense? It's different than us. J.I. Packer said Jesus's transfiguration affords a glimpse into the radiant and divine glory of Jesus. I love I love the response too of this. Jesus, sorry, Mark tries to explain it the best that he can. He tries to explain it the best he can. He says he says it's so white that that no one could bleach it this white. And this is best. This is the best thing you can come up with, right? Um, The other gospel writers, one gospel writer says it's like lightning. Another gospel writer says it's like the sun. Um, They're just, they're having a hard time really explaining the beauty of what's being seen here. Now, I want you guys to think about if you had a guy that was blind from birth, I want you to sit down, I want you to explain to him a beautiful sunset. Where do you start? (laughs) Okay, so there's this round thing in the sky. Okay, what's a round thing? Okay. Uh,. It's emanating lights and color. Okay, what are lights and colors? Okay, this is hard. You know, how do you do it? How does, how does the gospel writer explain the magnitude of the beauty of what he's seeing in Jesus being transfigured? It's like explaining a sunset to someone that, that's blind from birth. It just, it just doesn't happen. Before we move on to, think about this. This is cool. Go back to Moses, okay? You remember Moses in Mount Sinai? He begged of the Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. And God didn't. Why? Because it would have killed Moses. Why? Because man is eternally distanced from God. God is perfect and holy and we are completely and fully sinful. There is a divide between God and man. God cannot show himself to man because we would die. Here's a good illustration of it. In the Old Testament, there's a story where the Israelites are bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel. It's this great, amazing moment. And it's on a cart. <laughs> you guys might know this story. This one blew my mind. It's on a cart, and the cart begins to wobble. It hits a rock. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, the glory of God contained here in this, in this ark, this box, begins to fall off of the cart. And Uzzah... <laughs> A well-meaning guy thinks, this is the ark. It can't fall into the mud because the mud is filthy. I need to stop the cart. Puts his hand out, tries to stop the cart, and God smites him dead. (laughs) You guys are thinking, what? Is that really in the Bible? It is. It is in the Bible. What's happening here? The reality, guys, the reality is that that mud is one billion times cleaner than the hands of a man. (laughs) That we are so sinful and so wretched in the sight of God, apart from the work of Christ Jesus, that it would be better for God's presence to wallow in the mud than to touch the hand of even the best of men. That is the divide, apart from Christ Jesus, between God's purity and righteousness and man's fallenness. This is the state that God took us out of and paid for our sin to bring us into eternal dwelling with him. You guys get that? This is the state that Moses is before God in when he says, God, show me your glory. And says, Moses, I would kill you because I am so perfect and righteous and holy and you are so fallen that if you were to look upon my true nature, you would die. So what does God do? He hides him in the cleft of a rock. And God causes his hind parts, his backside basically to pass by. And Moses comes down from the mountain and his face is glowing from the glory of God. You guys have heard this story before, right? That's pretty cool. Okay, well, fast forward. Okay, a matter of uh, 14, 15, how many hundred years later? And and here they are on a mountain again. And Jesus is revealing his glory and they're not dying. (laughs) You guys understand, the this is what Jesus did for us. In the Old Testament, it was not possible for them, to under, it was not impossible for them to see the glory of God manifested. But now that Jesus is here, through Jesus, in Jesus, we can now see and witness the glory of God. We get to go to heaven and take in his glory forever, and we don't die. Now, it makes sense, as we're going to read in a second, it makes sense now, in my head, why Peter is frightened. <laughs> because he knew that from his... History that Moses couldn't even see the glory of God or he would die, and now Jesus is becoming this glorious figure right in front of him. He's terrified. He's terrified. This is what Jesus does for us. For the first time in history, man could gaze at the glory of God and live. And what was it through? It was through Jesus Christ. When we die, or when we get raptured, and when we go to heaven, we will gaze at the glory of God fully. For all of eternity, and we will not die because of Jesus Christ. Just like Peter, James, and John. How cool is that? Verse 4. There there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So, as if this story wasn't crazy enough, (laughs) here comes Moses and Elijah. These two patriarchal figures. One of them's been dead for 600 years, one of them's been dead for 1300, 1400 years. They've been dead for a long time, and here they are, alive having a conversation with Jesus while he's glowing. This is crazy, right? This is crazy. Now, why Moses and Elijah? What's the significance here for them? A few things. Firstly, uh, they're both prophets. Well, what's a prophet? A prophet was the mouthpiece of God. This is how God would speak to his people in the Old Testament was through a prophet. Moses, as you know, was the prophet that God gave the law, the Ten Commandments. Elijah was a prophet some years down the road, that was also responsible for calling God's people to repentance. Um, if you guys remember the story of, of the prophets of Baal and so on, we won't get into that. Secondly, um, they're both associated with high mountains. We talked about that a little bit earlier, but I think that's interesting, that both of these men had uh, seen God manifested in glory on mountains. Thirdly, both of these men underwent their own transformation. With transformation. Uh, Moses, as I just talked about, on on Mount Sinai, and Elijah uh, when he was taken up to heaven. Mm -hmm. Lastly and most importantly, why Elijah, why Moses? Both of these men are forerunners for Christ. Okay, what the forerunner means is both of these men, their ministry, their focus was to point forward to Christ. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 18.18. It says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. Who's that? Like Moses. This is a prophetic word that God gave. He said, Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's a prophecy of Christ. Moses' ministry was forward-focused. It was to usher in, to focus toward Christ Jesus, not himself. Elijah, as you guys might know in Malachi, says, Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So, both of these men's ministry was ultimately to point forward, to point forward to Christ. Hebrews 1 1 through 3 is kind of the key to this. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So in other words, the prophets were important. They were for a purpose. God used them to speak to his people. But now in these last times, Christ has become that prophet. So they're forerunners. Their presence here affirms the deity of Christ. Their presence here affirms the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. You guys have to understand something about the the Bible here. If you're a new Christian or if you've never heard this, this is huge, log this away. The Bible is like two giant arrows, okay? The Old Testament is an arrow shooting forward in time. All of the focus of the Old Testament is pointing forward to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. The New Testament is a giant arrow pointing backwards in time to Christ Jesus and what he did on the cross. It's all about him, it's all about him. Two giant areas. You've got to understand that. Elijah and Moses, they weren't there to glorify themselves. Their ministry was never to glorify themselves. Their ministry was to point forward to the coming Messiah that would redeem God's people. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. In other words, the law is fulfilled in Christ. He didn't come to change it. He didn't come to divert it. It's fulfilled in Christ. Now this is even further symbolized in our text. Let's let's keep keep reading on. Watch what happens to this amazing heavenly scene, okay? So we we got Moses here. We got Elijah here. Jesus is glowing. This is an amazing, glorious moment. And then something happens. Peter opens his mouth. <laughs> right? Okay, we can't pick on him too much, guys. I mean, we pick on Peter a lot, right? And uh, the reality is, is that we have to look at him like a mirror, okay? We can't look at him like, what an idiot. we got to look at him like, that's us. <laughs> when we open our mouth, stupid things come out. Just re- realistically, they do. If you don't believe me, read James. Um, so, glorious moment. Peter opens his mouth. Verse 5, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi... It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. First of all, it's good that we're here. Is that the best thing you can think? It's good that we're here. Let's pitch some tents. Why is it, why is this stupid thing coming out of his mouth? Well, the, the gospel writer helps us out here a little bit. Uh, it says, Well, first of all, he says, let's make one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Verse six, for he didn't know what to say, for he was terrified. <laughs> okay. Note to self, whenever you're scared, usually stupid things come out of your mouth, and especially with Peter. This is like his default setting. I don't know what's going on. I'm really confused, and this is scary. I better say something. <laughs> this is a pastor okay? Can I just say that? Since I am one, I-, I can say this, that we always think we have to say something <laughs> when really we should probably just shut up and watch God work. You know what I mean? And most people do this. Well, oh, this is amazing. I should say them. I should say something. I should jump in and try to to. Well, let's go put some tents up over here. This will be great. <laughs> it's good that we're here. Like, what are you thinking? When God is working, sometimes guys, it's just best to just be quiet and watch and let Him do the speaking. Let Him do the showing. It's not our job to try to translate everything. It's our job to sit back and point to Jesus. Right? Sometimes we need to keep our mouths shut. Now, Peter says two things wrong here. He, 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 said, he says, let me say that again, he's wrong in two ways, in two major ways here. First of all, Peter's trying to take this heavenly kingdom thing that's happening over here, and he's trying to make it a physical thing. He's trying to make it, uh, let's nail it down and make it a tent. <laughs> now, it's understandable why he would want to do this. Now, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but in Jewish history... God was not able to meet with man because his presence would kill man, right? So they would enter into the tabernacle, the holy of holies. And they could only do that through ceremonial cleansing and animal sacrifice. They would only do it once a year. They would go into the holy of holies because that was how God met with man. This was how man was meant to meet with God. Taught, sorry, to meet with God. But Jesus is changing that. And Peter is still stuck in the physical thinking. Oh man, Jesus is becoming glory right now, and here's Moses and here's Elijah. We better build a tabernacle and do it the way I'm used to doing it, because <laughs> this is a little scary. We better go take a ceremonial bath, and we better slay a lamb, and we better make sure that we're doing this the right way and build tabernacles. And while we're at it, dumb move number two, let's make tabernacles for Moses and Elijah. We always try to make it physical, we always try to make what God's doing in heaven something that we can contain. Why, why would Peter want to make a tabernacle for, for Elijah and Moses? Well, these are his heroes. I mean, the, these, are the, these are the guys that he grew up hearing about. These are, these are his Superman and Batman, if you will. I mean, these are, the, these are his heroes, the guys that, 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 that the patriarchs of the Judea, of Judaism. These are the people that he would have grown up understanding as, as, as the guys that he looked up to. And here they are, standing right in front of him. So he's like, great, this is awesome. You guys are all cool you're all great. Let's build a tabernacle for each of you. Completely missing. By stating that they should make three tabernacles, it's like to say that they're all equal. That's blasphemy. To say that they're all equal is just completely wrong. The law and the prophets, this is all that the Jews had at this point. You understand that? It's all that they had. It's a big deal to him. Do you guys realize that making too much of people has been the church's key downfall since the beginning? (laughs) is not it? Isn't it? I mean, read 1 Corinthians. What is Paul saying? You guys are fighting over things like, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas. You guys are all bickering about who you're for. You're making too much of the man. You're making too much of the physical leader when Jesus is the true apostle, when Jesus is the leader of the church. Fast forward a few hundred years. We're worshiping Mary now. We're praying to Mary now. We're praying to saints and putting saints in a place where we'll pray to them before we pray to Jesus. What's going on there? We're making too much of people we're making too much of men guys i worked at a church before this in bend oregon i preached a sermon about abraham and and i called him a joshmo. okay i was talking let me explain i ta- i was talking about before god called him to go be the first jew and when he was living in Ur, and he was just like a gentile guy living in a sinful pagan place before jews were even jews he was just a Joe Schmo guy. God plucked him out. And I said, Abraham was a Joe Schmo. And my point in that was that God takes and uses Joe Mo's. A man literally left the church because of that. Not, not like I'm going home for the day. Like he left the church. Gone. Because of that thing that I said. Because how dare I say that Abraham was a Joe Schmo. Dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> Abraham's a Joe Schmo. <laughs> okay? I will fight to the T on that. Guess who's not? Jesus Christ. Okay? It's not about the man. It's not about Mary. It's not about Abraham. It's not about Moses. It's not about Elijah. It's about Jesus, the Christ. It's about him, and it's about him alone. Listen to the Father's response, okay? God says, hey, hold on. Let me get involved here. Let me say something really quick. This if Peter was scared for... Before, he's really scared now, (laughs) okay? Opens his mouth, inserts his foot, and then the Shekinah glory falls on the mountain. The cloud comes, just like in Exodus, and God speaks out of the cloud. He says, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. No, wait, no, it says, Elijah and Moses, you should pray to them. Is that what it says? No. In fact, What does it say? And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As soon as Peter utters this stupid thing, God manifests himself in the glory, and Elijah and Moses are gone. Why? Because they're not important. They're not important. And all that's left is Jesus. And Jesus says, This is my son. Listen to him. This is the focus, this is the point. This is the prophet of eternity. This is the one who created the heavens that the heavens were created for. This is my glory. Jesus, not Elijah, not Moses. All the prophets are saying it, the law is saying it, and now the Father is saying it. It's all about Jesus. He's the focus. He's the point. Jesus is to be the center. Listen to this. Alexander McLaren says, remember that vision of the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, remember it. He says, let it be ours, even in the glare of earthly joys and brightness, to lift up our eyes like those wondering three, Peter, James, and John, and see no man anymore besides Jesus only. <laughs> let that be our life. When we look up, and God just removes the things that are distractions, and what's left is the thing that really matters, His Son, Jesus Christ. And I want you guys to ask yourself, and I need to ask myself tonight, what do you guys make much of? What do you make much of? What, What consumes your mind? What do you talk about the most? What do you think about the most? What is your identity found in? If you had a pie chart to look at of your life and the things that make up who you are and what you do, what do you make much of in your life? What do you give the preeminence in your life? And then I want you to think about that, I want you to compare that to how much you make of Christ in your life. How much do we talk about Christ? How much do we think about Christ? How much is he the focus of our joy, our conversation, of our hope, of our thought process, of our money, of our time, of our everything? Do we make much of Christ? Or do we say, ah, I think I'm going to make tabernacles for this and this and this and this in my life because I want to make Jesus part of my life. I want to take the cluttered bookshelf of my life and add Jesus wherever there's room. And God would come in Shekinah glory and tell you, Sam, no. This is my son. Listen to him. It's about him. It's for him. All things were made by him and for him. He's the point. He's the focus. Galatians 2.20. Paul gets this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. John the Baptist got it. You guys get that? What did he say? He says, I'm not the bride. I'm not the groom. I'm the, bri- I'm, I'm the groomsman. I'm the guy that stands off in the dark, in the shadow, and I'm just here to be part and to witness what's going on over here. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. He's the point. He's the focus. If Jesus is part of your life, you're missing it. Jesus needs to be our life. Jesus is just part of, of what we do and not the, the focus of what we do, everything that we do. And as soon as you make it about anything other than Christ, the show's over. You notice that? They're gone. <laughs> Flips the switch. Peter makes it about the wrong thing. Moses and Elijah are gone. It's over. <laughs> Verse 9 and 10. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them all to tell no one what they had seen and tell the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Okay, that was awesome, right? Don't tell anybody about it. (laughs) The funny thing is, is they didn't. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They're still confused about the resurrection. They don't get that yet. They're, They're discussing it. So they kept the matter to themselves. The disciples actually waited. If you guys want, you can check it out, and I'll read it real quick. In Second Peter one sixteen, Peter actually finally gets to talk about this transfiguration that happened. Some time has passed. He's received the Holy Spirit. He's grown, and here he says, in Second Peter one sixteen, he says, "For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty." For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quotes, "This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased." We ourselves heard this voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word and more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Peter gets to talk about what happened there. And his takeaway from that is hope. He's the light flickering in the dark. Keep looking at that. Keep focusing at that. Thomas Aquinas said, at his transfiguration, Christ showed his disciples the splendor of his beauty to which he will shape and color those who are his. He will reform our our lowness configured to the body of his glory. The good news of the transfiguration, guys, not only is that Jesus is the focus, that Jesus is the point, but that we get to look like that too. That our hope is that we will be glorified. We have been justified in Christ. We are being sanctified through the Holy Spirit, and we will be glorified in heaven. We will be. Philippians 2, I'm sorry, Philippians 3, listen. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform, there's that word, our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Again, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The hope is that we too will be transformed, that we too will be translated and glorified in God's kingdom of heaven forever. Our hope is in this, guys, that as Jesus is, we will be also. That we will be like him. That when he comes, we don't know when, but we will be like him. That we will spend eternity with him. In the, in the beginning of this thing I said, isn't it amazing <laughs> how we're wired to want things that are greater than ourselves? It's for a reason. God did not build you fearfully and wonderfully make you and accidentally wire you up to want things greater than you can find, to be uncontent with this world, to wanna go look at spectacular things, to stare at the ocean because it's huge, to go to the Grand Canyon because it's majestic, to look at the stars because they're beautiful and vast and beyond what we can understand. That was not an accident. He designed you that way on purpose, Because you were not made to live in this fallen world forever. You were made to live in heaven with him. You were made to live in glory. You were made to be given an eternal body and to spend the rest of eternal life discovering the greatest adventure that we have to come, and that is Jesus Christ. That is heaven. Exploring, understanding Jesus Christ. This is what we have to look forward to. So the next time that you guys look at something spectacular, The next time that you climb a mountain and see a beautiful view, think about this. Think about the disciples that got to gaze at the glory of Jesus and had that flicker of hope, as Peter says, years down the road in his epistle, that flicker of hope that someday we will be like Christ, that we will be glorified. And when you guys feel physical pain and when you feel emotional pain and when people hurt you and people walk over you and things are hard and you're tired, remember that. Remember that. This is not it, guys. I can't say that enough. This is not it. Our hope, our chips are in him. He rose, he's been glorified, and we will too. And he's gonna make sure of it. Amen? God, thanks. Would you guys stand with me? God, thank you so much, Lord, for that truth tonight, God. I thank you for the simplicity and the truth, yet the complexity of your gospel. Lord, I thank you that it's all about you, Jesus, that we need not concern ourselves with worshiping man or following blindly man, because you are our ultimate leader. Jesus, for this small group tonight, I pray, Lord, that we would look forward to seeing greater things than what we've seen. Lord, some of us in this room tonight are tired. We feel like there's nothing left in this world that we would love to see. (laughs) And God, I know that that's on purpose. I know that you've made us that way so that, Lord, we would long to see more in heaven with you. God, I pray that you would be our everything. God, that we would not try to add you, Jesus, to our life, but that you would be our life. Jesus, we thank you that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and that we are in you, and that though we have no light of our own, that you have clothed us with your light, with your righteousness, that we are like the moon, As the sun shines on us, God, Lord, you're the source of light and we are simply the reflection, God. So I pray that we would be on mission, Lord, as we go down the hill and home into our homes, to our workplaces, Lord, help us to shine for you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Have a great evening.